Hello, this is Jeff Barnum reading the Supreme Court Opinion Syllabus in Students for Fair Admissions Incorporated versus President and Fellows of Harvard College, certiorari to the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit, consolidated with Students for Fair Admissions Incorporated versus University of North Carolina et al. on certiorari before judgment to the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Argued October 31st, 2022, decided June 29th, 2023. Harvard College and the University of North Carolina, UNC, are two of the oldest institutions of higher learning in the United States. Every year, tens of thousands of students apply to each school. Many fewer are admitted. Both Harvard and UNC employ a highly selective admissions process to make their decisions. Admission to each school can depend on a student's grades, recommendation letters, or extracurricular involvement. It can also depend on their race. The question presented is whether the admission systems used by Harvard College and UNC are lawful under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. At Harvard, each application for admission is initially screened by a first reader who assigns a numerical score in each of six categories academic, extracurricular, athletic, school support, personal, and overall. For the overall category, a composite of the five other ratings, a first reader can and does consider the applicant's race. Harvard's admission subcommittees then review all applications from a particular geographic area. These regional subcommittees make recommendations to the full admissions committee, and they take an applicant's race into account. When the 40-member Full Admissions Committee begins its deliberations, it discusses the relative breakdown of applicants by race. The goal of the process, according to Harvard's Director of Admissions, is ensuring there is no dramatic drop-off in minority admissions from the prior class. An applicant receiving majority of the full committee's votes is tentatively accepted for admission. At the end of this process, the racial composition of the tentative applicant pool is disclosed to the committee. The last stage of Harvard's admissions process, called the LOP, winnows the list of tentatively admitted students to arrive at the final class. Applicants that Harvard considers cutting at this stage are placed on the LOP list, which contains only four pieces of information. Legacy status, recruited athlete status, financial aid eligibility, and race. In the Harvard admissions process, Race is a determinative tip for a significant percentage of all admitted African-American and Hispanic applicants. UNC has a similar admissions process. Every application is reviewed first by an admissions office reader who assigns a numerical rating to each of several categories. Readers are required to consider the applicant's race as a factor in their review. Readers then make a written recommendation on each assigned application and they may provide an applicant a substantial plus, depending on the applicant's race. At this stage, most recommendations are provisionally final. A committee of experienced staff members then conducts a school group review of every initial decision made by a reader and either approves or rejects the recommendation. In making those decisions, the committee may consider the applicant's race. Petitioner, Students for Fair Admissions, SFFA, is a nonprofit organization whose stated purpose is to defend human and civil rights secured by law 
including the right of individuals to equal protection under the law. SFFA filed separate lawsuits against Harvard and UNC, arguing that their race-based admissions violate, respectively, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. After separate bench trials, both admissions programs were found permissible under the Equal Protection Clause and this Court's precedents. In the Harvard case, the First Circuit affirmed, and this Court granted certiorari. In the UNC case, this Court granted certiorari before judgment. Held, Harvard's and UNC's admissions programs violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Because SFFA complies with the standing requirements for organizational plaintiffs articulated by this court in Hunt v. Washington State Apple Advertising Commission, 432 U.S. 333, a Supreme Court case from 1977, SFFA's obligation under Article III are satisfied, and this court has jurisdiction to consider the merits of SFFA's claims. The court rejects UNC's argument that SFFA lacks standing because it is not a genuine membership organization. An organizational plaintiff can satisfy Article III jurisdiction in two ways, one of which is to assert standing solely as the representative of its members, an approach known as representational or organizational standing. To invoke it, an organization must satisfy the three-part test in Hunt. Respondents do not suggest that SFFA fails Hunt's test for organizational standing. They argue instead that SFFA cannot invoke organizational standing at all because SFFA was not a genuine membership organization at the time it filed suit. Respondents maintain that, under Hunt, a group qualifies as a genuine membership organization only if it is controlled and funded by its members. In Hunt, this court determined that a state agency with no traditional members could still qualify as a genuine membership organization in substance because the agency represented the interests of individuals and otherwise satisfied Hunt's three-part test for organizational standing. Hunt's indicia of membership analysis, however, has no applicability here. As the courts below found, SFFA is indisputably a voluntary membership organization with identifiable members who support its mission and whom SFFA represents in good faith. SFFA is thus entitled to rely on the organizational standing doctrine as articulated in Hunt. Proposed by Congress and ratified by the states in the wake of the Civil War, the 14th Amendment provides that no state shall deny to any person the equal protection of the laws. Proponents of the Equal Protection Clause described its foundational principle as not permitting any distinction of law based on race or color. Any law which operates on one man, they maintained, should operate equally upon all. Accordingly, as this Court's early decisions interpreting the Equal Protection Clause explained, the 14th Amendment guaranteed that the law in the states shall be the same for the black as for the white, that all persons, whether colored or white, shall stand equal before the laws of the states. Despite the early recognition of the broad sweep of the Equal Protection Clause, the Court, alongside the country, quickly failed to live up to the clause's core commitments. For almost a century after the Civil War, state-mandated segregation was in many parts of the nation a regrettable norm. 
this court played its own role in that ignoble history, allowing in Plessy v. Ferguson the separate but equal regime that would come to deface much of America. After Plessy, American courts labored with the doctrine of separate but equal for over half a century. Some cases in this period attempted to curtail the perniciousness of the doctrine by emphasizing it required states to provide black students educational opportunities equal to, even if formally separate from, those enjoyed by white students. But the inherent folly of that approach, of trying to derive equality from inequality, soon became apparent. As the court subsequently recognized, even racial distinctions that were argued to have no palpable effect worked to subordinate the afflicted students. By 1950, the inevitable truth of the 14th Amendment had thus begun to reemerge. Separate cannot be equal. The culmination of this approach came finally in Brown v. Board of Education, 347 U.S. 483, a Supreme Court case from 1954. There, the court overturned the separate but equal regime established in Plessy and began on the path of invalidating all de jure racial discrimination by the states and federal government. The conclusion reached by the Brown Court was unmistakably clear. The right to a public education must be available to all on equal terms. The court reiterated that rule just one year later, holding that full compliance with Brown required schools to admit students on a racially non-discriminatory basis. In the years that followed, Brown's fundamental principle that racial discrimination in public education is unconstitutional reached other areas of life. For example, state and local laws requiring segregation in busing, racial segregation in the enjoyment of public beaches and bathhouses, and anti-miscegenation laws. These decisions, and others like them, reflect the core purpose of the Equal Protection Clause, doing away with all governmentally imposed discrimination based on race. Eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it. Accordingly, the court has held that the Equal Protection Clause applies without regard to any differences of race, of color, or of nationality. It is universal in its application. For the guarantee of equal protection cannot mean one thing when applied to one individual, and something else when applied to a person of another color. Any exceptions to the Equal Protections Clause guarantee must survive a daunting two-step examination known as strict scrutiny, which asks first whether the racial classification is used to further compelling government interests, and second, whether the government's use of race is narrowly tailored, i.e. necessary to achieve that interest. Acceptance of a race-based state action is rare for a reason. Distinctions between citizens solely because of their ancestry are by their very nature odious to a free people whose institutions are founded upon the doctrine of equality. This court first considered whether a university may make race-based admissions decisions in Regents of University of California v. Bakke, 438 U.S. 265, a Supreme Court case from 1978. In a deeply splintered decision that produced six different opinions, Justice Powell's opinion for himself alone would eventually come to serve as the touchstone for constitutional analysis of race-conscious admissions policies. After rejecting three of the university's four justifications as not sufficiently compelling, Justice Powell turned to its last interest asserted to be compelling, 
obtaining the educational benefits that flow from a racially diverse student body. Justice Powell found that interest to be a constitutionally permissible goal for an institution of higher education, which was entitled as a matter of academic freedom to make its own judgments as to the selection of its student body. But a university's freedom was not unlimited. Racial and ethnic distinctions of any sort are inherently suspect, Justice Powell explained, and antipathy toward them was deeply rooted in our nation's constitutional and demographic history. Accordingly, a university could not employ a two-track quota system with a specific number of seats reserved for individuals from a preferred ethnic group. Neither still could a university use race to foreclose an individual from all consideration. Race could only operate as a plus in a particular applicant's file, and even then it had to be weighed in a manner flexible enough to consider all pertinent elements of diversity in light of the particular qualifications of each applicant. For years following Bakke, lower courts struggled to determine whether Justice Powell's decision was binding precedent. Then, in Grutter v. Bollinger, 539 U.S. 306, a Supreme Court case from 2003, the court, for the first time, endorsed Justice Powell's view that student body diversity is a compelling state interest that can justify the use of race in university admissions. The Grutter majority's analysis tracked Justice Powell's in many respects including its insistence on limits on how universities may consider race in their admissions programs. Those limits, Grutter explained, were intended to guard against two dangers that all race-based government action portends. The first is the risk that the use of race will devolve into illegitimate stereotyping. Admissions programs could thus not operate on the belief that minority students always, or even consistently, express some characteristic minority viewpoint on any issue. The second risk is that race would be used not as a plus, but as a negative, to discriminate against those racial groups that were not the beneficiaries of the race-based preference. A university's use of race, accordingly, could not occur in a manner that unduly harmed non-minority applicants. To manage these concerns, Grutter imposed one final limit on race-based admissions programs. At some point, the court held, they must end. Recognizing that enshrining a permanent justification for racial preferences would offend the Constitution's unambiguous guarantee of equal protection, the Court expressed its expectation that, in 25 years, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest approved today. Twenty years have passed since Grutter, with no end to race-based college admissions in sight but the court has permitted race-based college admissions only within the confines of narrow restrictions. Such admissions programs must comply with strict scrutiny, may never use race as a stereotype or negative, and must, at some point, end. Respondents' admission systems fail each of these criteria and must therefore be invalidated under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Respondents fail to operate their race-based admissions programs in a manner that is sufficiently measurable to permit judicial review under the rubric of strict scrutiny. First, the interests that respondents view as compelling cannot be subjected to meaningful judicial review. Those interests include training future leaders, acquiring new knowledge based on diverse outlooks, promoting a robust marketplace of ideas, and preparing engaged and productive citizens. While these are commendable goals, they are not sufficiently coherent for purposes of strict scrutiny. 
it is unclear how courts are supposed to measure any of these goals, or, if they could, to know when they have been reached so that racial preferences can end. The elusiveness of respondents' asserted goals is further illustrated by comparing them to recognized compelling interests. For example, courts can discern whether the temporary racial segregation of inmates will prevent harm to those in the prison, but the question whether a particular mix of minority students produces engaged and productive citizens, or effectively trains future leaders, is standardless. Second, respondents' admissions programs fail to articulate a meaningful connection between the means they employ and the goals they pursue. To achieve the educational benefits of diversity, respondents measure the racial composition of their classes using racial categories that are plainly overbroad, expressing, for example, no concern whether South Asian or East Asian students are adequately represented as Asian, arbitrary or undefined, the use of the category Hispanic, or under-inclusive, no category at all for Middle Eastern students. The unclear connection between the goals that respondents seek and the means they employ preclude courts from meaningfully scrutinizing respondents' admissions programs. The university's main response to these criticisms is, trust us. They assert that universities are owed deference when using race to benefit some applicants but not others. While this court has recognized a tradition of giving a degree of deference to a university's academic decisions, it has made clear that deference must exist within constitutionally prescribed limits. Respondents have failed to present an exceedingly persuasive justification for separating students on the basis of race that is measurable and concrete enough to permit judicial review as the Equal Protection Clause requires. Respondents' race-based admission systems also fail to comply with the Equal Protection Clause's twin commands that race may never be used as a negative and that it may not operate as a stereotype. The First Circuit found that Harvard's consideration of race has resulted in fewer admissions of Asian American students. Respondents' assertion that race is never a negative factor in their admissions programs cannot withstand scrutiny. College admissions are zero-sum, and a benefit provided to some applicants, but not to others, necessarily advantages the former at the expense of the latter. Respondents' admissions programs are infirm for a second reason as well. They require stereotyping, the very thing Grutter forswore. When a university admits students on the basis of race, it engages in the offensive and demeaning assumption that students of a particular race, because of their race, think alike. Such stereotyping is contrary to the core purpose of the Equal Protection Clause. Respondents' admissions programs also lack a logical endpoint as Grutter required. Respondents suggest that the end of race-based admissions programs will occur once meaningful representation and diversity are achieved on college campuses. Such measures of success amount to little more than comparing the racial breakdown of the incoming class and comparing it to some other metric, such as the racial makeup of the previous incoming class or the population in general, to see whether some proportional goal has been reached. The problem with this approach is well established. Outright racial balancing is patently unconstitutional. Respondents' second proffered endpoint, when students receive the educational benefits of diversity, fares no better. As explained, it is unclear how a court is supposed to determine if or when such goals would be adequately met. Third, respondents suggest that the 25-year expectation in Grutter means that race-based preferences must be allowed to continue until at least 2028. The court's statement in Grutter, however, reflected only the court's expectation 
that race-based preferences would, by 2028, be unnecessary in the context of racial diversity on college campuses. Finally, respondents argue that the frequent reviews they conduct to determine whether racial preferences are still necessary obviates the need for an endpoint. But Grutter never suggested that periodic review can make unconstitutional conduct constitutional. Because Harvard's and UNC's admissions programs lack sufficiently focused and measurable objectives warranting the use of race, unavoidably employ race in a negative manner, involve racial stereotyping, and lack meaningful endpoints, those admissions programs cannot be reconciled with the guarantees of the Equal Protection Clause. At the same time, nothing prohibits universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected the applicant's life. So long as that discussion is concretely tied to a quality of character or unique ability that the particular applicant can contribute to the university. Many universities have for too long wrongly concluded that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges bested, skills built, or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. This nation's constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. Reversed. Chief Justice Roberts delivered the opinion of the court in which Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett joined. Justice Thomas filed a concurring opinion. Justice Gorsuch filed a concurring opinion, in which Justice Thomas joined. Justice Kavanaugh filed a concurring opinion. Justice Sotomayor filed a dissenting opinion, in which Justice Kagan joined, in which Justice Jackson joined, as it applies to the case involving the University of North Carolina. Justice Jackson filed a dissenting opinion in the case involving the University of North Carolina, in which Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan joined. Justice Jackson took no part in the consideration or decision of the case involving Harvard College. Thank you for listening. If you wish to communicate with the podcast, please email us at scotusdecisions at gmail.com. Please help us by rating and reviewing this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening to us for these decisions in OT 2022. We'll be back with the decisions of the Supreme Court in their own words after the first Monday in October. We'll see you then.